Welcome to Body Matters Podcast, where we bring to you raw and inspiring content on all things to do with body positivity and eating disorder recovery. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as traditional people and traditional owners of this country. We acknowledge with gratitude First Nations communities for their continuing care and connection to the lands or waters with which they have protected for thousands of years. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome to the podcast, Liz. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Jessie. It's a real privilege and honour to be here today. Thanks for inviting me. Would you be able to provide a little background information about yourself and maybe talk about some things that you do to stay well? Yeah, so Baraba Yuti Liz, Dangbang Waramai Golbang. My name is Liz and I'm a proud Waramai woman, a mother of two beautiful boys. I'm a psychology registrar. I'm a senior lecturer and health researcher at the University of Wollongong and I'm someone with a lived experience of anorexia. So as an Aboriginal person, my approach to wellness is holistic and focuses on ensuring I have a balance between seven whole-of-life domains. So this means that I'm aware that I have different parts of myself and that my health and well-being is dependent on so many things, and that means I require a range of different skills and strategies. So on a day-to-day basis, for me, that means ensuring I take time to pray, read my Bible, move joyfully, eat a variety of foods connect with my country, spend time with my family and engage in my hobbies. Hmm, nice. So each week on the podcast, we like to ask our guests about a recent challenge that they have recently faced and how they have managed to overcome it. So this was a really difficult kind of question because I couldn't think of a challenge that I've actually overcome, but I can talk about challenges that I am working to overcome And basically, because much of my work revolves around teaching and advocating for the integration of Aboriginal approaches to health and wellness into mainstream fields, I face a lot of challenges at the systemic level in terms of policies and practices, social and community levels, such as racism, ignorance and reluctance from individuals to have our knowledges integrated or recognised. And also there's a limitation on time, resources and places where Aboriginal health matters are giving proper attention. Well, it's amazing the work that you're able to do then in that space to raise awareness for it. Thanks, Jessie. So sadly, nothing that I'm overcoming, but with the myself and some amazing and other deadly people in the academic and Aboriginal health space, both non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal, we are all collaborating really well and working to overcome this together. Yes, which is good to hear. Would you be able to speak a little bit about your experiences with anorexia nervosa? Sure. So my first experience of this horrific disease were during early years of high school. So in primary school, I was a quiet kid and I was teased constantly throughout my years because I was chubby and different. I didn't have any friends. I was really lonely. I was very much in a white mainstream school and a white mainstream community, so always felt on the outside. So needless to say that I developed a really poor sense of myself and very negative body image. Then I remember over the Christmas holiday period between year six and seven, I lost weight going through puberty, as we do. I took up karate, meaning that I was moving my body in a different way and much more than typical. 
And then come the return to year seven, having lost weight, I found myself suddenly invited into friend groups, being asked to birthday parties and things like that. And I had a new sense of like acceptance and belonging. And sadly, this kick-started a hypervigilance over my body weight and shape. And then the sneaky creep that it is, anorexia, emerges my so-called cheerleader in the game of staying thin because I wanted to stay accepted and that sense of belonging to others. So unfortunately, anorexia has lived with me ever since in a kind of on and off relationship. Although recovered, it does always know that when I'm weak and vulnerable. And I think like many other people who have lived experiences with eating disorders will know that it's often a false coping strategy that at the time does work. It does alleviate some distress and and confusion and create safety and calm for people at at particular times. But, But as we know, it's just a really harmful and creepy disease that really once it gets a hold of you, doesn't want to let go. And kids when they're little are so cute, like they're adorable, so hard. Mm. I know, and it's really just a shame that, you know, kids are geared towards teasing other kids based purely on appearance. We're not teaching or there's a lack of teaching in our community about appreciating people's inner beauty and inner worlds and their inner selves rather than this constant focus on the external. I agree. So what do you feel were the main elements that geared you towards recovery? Well, really, I just hated living my life like I was in prison and I hated the rules and the regulations and the associated guilt and shame whenever I didn't follow the anorexia's demands or appease it in any way. Um, And I really, I wanted to be accepted for who I was created to be. I wanted to feel like, like a strong Aboriginal woman, a strong Aboriginal mother, a strong Aboriginal community member, regardless of my appearance, weight or shape, and just, yeah, I just had had enough. Yes, without the identity of the eating disorder. Absolutely. So how could the support for your eating disorder have been better? I feel like there needed to be much more awareness in when I was a 13 and 14 through my GPs who failed to pick up early signs and symptoms that I was progressing towards anorexia with significant weight loss and my family and my friends not recognizing some of my signs but there was also complications because I was a sickly child so I am now diagnosed celiac but I was undiagnosed at the time so People just assumed that my fainting and the weight loss and the awkwardness around food was better accounted for by the celiac disease. But nobody really did ask me about my relationship with food and some of the other signs and symptoms that wouldn't be associated with celiacs. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is a problem that it wasn't picked up. And a lot of people don't recognize it or aren't aware of the symptoms, even in the medical field as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a real shame. And I remember even having had periods of relapse and remission throughout my journey. So since it came into my life young, it's come and gone and there's been different GPs and even psychologists and things along the way saying unhelpful things like just go home and eat or this will pass or 
just really, really unhelpful kind of things that are showing signs of ignorance and lack of education. Definitely. Yeah, especially in treatment for eating disorders, it's good to have people who are trained and up to date with the professional knowledge. Uh, Absolutely. I've also, other ways that the treatment could have been better for me was that as an adult, I went into inpatient rehabilitation centres twice and nobody appreciated or tried to integrate my Aboriginal approach to health and wellness. And there was one particular private rehabilitation centre I went to that did notice that I'd identified as Aboriginal on the form and put me with an Indian psychiatrist because they said to me, this guy knows about culture. And to me, that was unacceptable and discriminatory to both of us and really disrespectful for both of our cultural mindsets as well as for myself it was so unhelpful there's no cultural awareness whatsoever there no it wasn't safe either in that particular the inpatient setting to me I experienced that as really clinical it was very cold it was really clinical I I felt like a specimen there was a major focus on nutritional rehabilitation which don't get me wrong, is an important part of anorexia recovery, as we know, but it seemed to be more geared towards just weight gain and symptom resolution rather than recognising, well, one, that I've got a holistic approach to health and wellbeing and my health depends on the connection to seven major life domains, but also that eating disorders are much more than just food, that there is a whole underlying story behind each person's experience with an eating disorder and that goes it goes beyond food mm. and just focusing on getting people to eat doesn't even resolve the relationship to their eating disorder and it's, it's not maintainable once people leave there's no no skills or there hasn't been a repair in the relationship with food because you've just been forced to eat six times a day and sit around a table and it's yeah it was a it was a really unique and sadly unhelpful experience yeah they're not addressing the underlying causes that in each individual has that's right yes and I do believe and I know from from my own lived experiences that each person has a unique relationship to their eating disorder even though we do present with similar signs and symptoms our relationship and what it takes to be well and to recover is unique and different and it really does require an individualistic and tailored approach. It definitely does. So why are Indigenous Australians more susceptible to experiencing mental health symptoms compared to non-Aboriginal Australians? So sadly, there is a major lack of research in this area to really give us a clear and comprehensive understanding of this. But we can assume that it is associated with things like the cost for us, the cost and consequences for us of living in a colonised society. So we experience a lot of ongoing trauma, intergenerational trauma from past policies and practices. We know from other research in other areas that Aboriginal people experience 2.5 times higher rates of psychological distress on a daily basis. So you can 
imagine if you add an eating disorder into that, how disabling and debilitating someone's life can actually be. Many of our communities don't have access to culturally safe medical services. There is an inequitable distribution of safe housing. There are gaps in our employment and education. And we experience ongoing grief and loss due to high rates of mortality and chronic disease that our mob is facing. Mm. And the systemic barriers, especially in healthcare, with the history of the stolen generation. And absolutely. So, how has the introduction of Western food through colonization impacted the lives of Aboriginal peoples? Well, I think. There are many impacts for Aboriginal people through the introduction of Western foods. For one, we experience high rates of chronic disease and mortality, as I've just described, which I believe are signs that our bodies are under stress due to the introduction of Western foods, which when you think about the way that Aboriginal people used to eat through our bush tucker and and through what our countries provided for us are really different from the Western diet, which today is highly processed, it's pre-packaged, it's it's convenience, as opposed to our uh, bush foods and traditional foods that were higher in lean proteins and and well-balanced in nuts and grains and seeds and things like that. Other ways that it's impacted on us is that it's taken away our culture in the sense that there isn't the need for us to now go and get our own food, which means that the knowledge and the stories behind particular foods, totems, ways of gathering, even things like the knowledge to make tools and to hunt and to know when to hunt and where to hunt is not being passed on or or utilised, which further disconnects us from our culture It takes us away from country and because connections to country and culture are part of the seven life domains that are really vital for us to be strong and healthy peoples, there is a major impact on our identities and our health and well-being. And genetically, your bodies wouldn't be accustomed. It would be a bit more of a shock. Absolutely. And I think that's another way that with our high rates of chronic disease, it's a sign that our bodies are under under stress and are are likely maybe trying to adapt and change and and do their best in terms of now the the DNA changes all the alterations needed for us to, to be able to live off the Western diet, which is predominantly the the only access to food that we have. So then why is there an increased risk for First Nations people in developing an eating disorder? So again, sadly, we really don't have much research in this space, but we can surmise that it's mostly because we're already living with high rates of daily psychological distress and that many of us are living with many of the eating disorder comorbidities such as anxiety, depression, We've also got really internalised negative views of ourselves and our culture due to social racism and negative social media portrayals. And we face many barriers to accessing and maintaining connections to cultural, culturally safe and effective treatments. 
And there's also a major issue with food insecurity as well for, for many of our mobs, particularly in rural and regional countries. And it would be hard to also access treatment and resources from rural communities as well. Absolutely. We know that one of the major access and engagement barriers for Aboriginal people to seek adequate mental health support is that there is a lack of services to rural and regional remote communities. It's also with that fly-in, fly-out model, it's not culturally safe or appropriate because something that is really important when when providing especially mental health support for an Aboriginal person is that there's a relationship formed between the Aboriginal person and the clinician. And that takes time and that requires a commitment to develop that relationship with one particular clinician and, and the need to really sit and listen to a person's story prior to then being able to offer mainstreams knowledge about how that particular person could be helped or not and even to listen back for the Aboriginal person and communities' views on how they could be treated and supported and that takes time to develop and that fly-in, fly-out model sadly doesn't accommodate for that. There definitely needs to be a lot more cultural awareness because there's so much to learn and understand. Absolutely. And even things like understanding that cost for service is a major barrier and transport, particularly for people needing to recover from eating disorders, because as we know, we need to have access to many service providers. So a dietitian, a psychologist, a GP, possibly an exercise physiologist. There are things like bone scans and things that need to happen. And these aren't just one-off um, cost demands these are ongoing we know that recovery from an eating disorder can take some time and, and a big financial commitment yeah definitely so what is cultural appropriation how could we then best understand it cultural appropriation is basically when a dominant culture takes things from an oppressed cultural group so since colonization aboriginal people have sadly become an oppressed an oppressed population in our own countries because of the inequitable distribution of power and privilege between non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal peoples. So an example of when cultural appropriation occurs is when a non-Indigenous, like a person, organisation, a group or a business, for example, takes an aspect of an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander culture and uses it without permission, without showing due respect or acknowledgement, or a failure to provide any form of reciprocity or payment. So, for example, if a business was making profit by using Aboriginal artwork and they weren't using, they didn't have permission or weren't providing the artist or community with payment. Yes. So what are some cultural concepts that could assist clinicians in better understanding Aboriginal health? So, again, sadly, research is lacking and totally needed before I can offer a confident answer. But based on our cultural knowledges and understanding of health and wellness, I could suggest that an appropriate approach would be one that addresses the causes and recovery multi-systemically and from a collectivist perspective, and one that applies holistic treatments to address the seven life elements that we know and articulate as social emotional well-being. So if you think of a pizza that's cut into seven slices, each piece represents a connection 
um, to an aspect of the human experience that we know and as one of the oldest living cultures on the face of the earth have known for a long time are essential for maintaining good health and wellness. And so the connections are connection to body, connection to mind and emotions, connection to family and kinship, connection to community, connection to culture, connection to country, and connection to spirit and ancestors. If you think about the middle of the pizza, you centralize the self, but it's not an individualistic self as the Western world often defines it. It's more of a communal self where we're very much connected to our community and to seeing the world from a collectivist perspective. And then if you think outside of the pizza on the pizza tray, we need to recognize that there's an interplay with the social, cultural, political and historical determinants of our lives. So it may sound complicated and difficult, but to enable an Aboriginal person to be strong and healthy, we recognize that it's, it's an ongoing journey. It's a collectivist journey. And it requires much, much more than just, say, a focus on reducing symptoms or, again, going back to what I said earlier, just getting someone to eat more. That's an amazing approach that it sounds complicated, but it actually sounds simple that we should adopt things like that. Absolutely. And I think a major part of that, that needs to be kind of spoken about is that we recognize that health and well-being is is an ongoing journey and a daily practice and I think diet culture has tapped into that because diet culture is selling us on a day-to-day basis health and wellness knowing that health and wellness isn't a final destination that it it is a day-to-day investment of time energy and resources I think that's something that makes that diet culture prosper sadly in that space that it's holistic to the individual and society absolutely so how can the current eating disorder treatment services best provide emotional and cultural support for first nations people i can offer some practical advice but again we we really would love to see some research coming forward as to as to exactly how how this could occur and ideally This would be based on um, lots of conversations with many different Aboriginal communities and groups who have lived through or are living with eating disorders, they've experienced it, and we can really tap into the knowledges. But with that lack of knowledge currently at the forefront, I can offer some practical advice for anyone that's caring for an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person, and that would be, first of all, to really get to know your client as a unique person, really get to understand their story, their cultural worldview. Never assume that all Aboriginal peoples have the same cultural worldview. Over 400 different language groups and countries around our country mean that we share perspectives, but we do have uniquenesses as well. And really take that time to establish trust and rapport before offering clinical advice or asking too many clinical questions. Also, don't assume cross-cultural equivalence of symptoms of expression or experience. So because we don't have much research in the space, we don't know if all of the DSM-5 criteria is appropriate for Aboriginal peoples 
or explains or describes Aboriginal people's experiences with eating disorders. I would also recommend that you practice a lot of critical reflection. So always keep in mind your how your position and privilege might come across in the healing space and in relationships with Aboriginal peoples. Um, always treat our matters holistically, i.e. not just treating the anorexia, but going back to the social emotional wellbeing model, you're also needing to treat a person's connection to their culture, to their community and their spirit. And we need to be aware of the historical, political and social determinants of our health as well. I would really encourage you to push back against systemic access and engagement barriers, such as ongoing costs for service, for example, and even consider the clinical settings. So uh, that avoidance of a really cold clinical space, clinic rooms that are a little bit, that, that could be uncomfortable or threatening, particularly if it looks like a real government kind of room, and just create a space that Aboriginal people can come and share their story. And then finally, I'd encourage you to be a champion, a champion in your workplace for the integration of Aboriginal psychological knowledges. Seek it out, explore it. You can find things over Google, talk to other Aboriginal health and wellbeing people, talk to Aboriginal people in your community, really champion the integration of that because long-term that's hopefully how we will improve the whole healthcare system. Yes, definitely. So what does your culture mean to you? What are some meaningful aspects that you feel non-Indigenous Australians would benefit from? Well, basically my culture means everything. It, it connects me to my life domains. It, it is my identity. It's my source of strength. It, it offers me direction and hope. It enabled me to recover and to maintain recovery and to get through difficulties. It provides me with my my values, my morals, goals to live by. It's really the lens through which I understand and interact with the world around me. Um, it helps me be connected uh, internally and externally. It helps me be a mom. It helps me do my work and keep myself grounded amongst the chaos and pressures of living in a living and walking in two worlds, really, the Aboriginal world and the, the colonised world. Do you have anything also that you think someone who may feel disconnected from culture should know? So sadly, um, many of our mob are disconnected from their culture because of the stolen generation era and because of the ongoing impact of colonisation and the intergenerational trauma that our communities are experiencing. Some ways that some Aboriginal people are healing from this is to go and find as much evidence and information as they can about their mob. Now that's really difficult because a lot of a lot of the historical documents don't exist or are incorrect or inaccessible or maybe even lacking for a particular family or person. Some people don't even have the names of their Aboriginal ancestors that they can even start to look on that journey. But as cultural people know, as Aboriginal people know and, and say to each other is that culture is inside of you and it's alive and it can't be killed and it can be listened to and it can guide people on their journey. And I would encourage 
Aboriginal people to connect to their local Aboriginal community, start getting to know people, talking to elders and finding a way forward in their own story and journey that would hopefully eventually lead them back to understanding and connecting to their culture. That's really lovely. Thanks, Liz. Do you have any advice for someone who is an Aboriginal person who may be struggling with an eating disorder? Yeah, I'd really like to say don't let shame, embarrassment or guilt stop you from reaching out to someone that you trust and letting them know that you might be struggling or that you are experiencing an eating disorder. Be brave. Seek help as early as you can from a local Aboriginal community health service or a service or a person that you feel the most safe with. You can contact me. You can Google and find other Aboriginal people who are making themselves and their struggles with eating disorders public because that's why we're doing it. We're stepping out publicly so that people in our community can see that well, recovery is possible and that there are other people who've gone on your journey and can help and support you towards recovery too. Well, thank you so much for this interview, Liz. It's been invaluable. It was a real privilege. Thank you so much. Well, that's the end of today's episode. Please subscribe, leave us a comment or a review. If you would also like to learn more about Body Matters services, you can check out our website at bodymatters.com.au. Thanks for listening.